Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where tonight, as we are releasing this, a new documentary is premiering across the country on the CBC and on GEM at 8 p.m. local, wherever you are across the country, and then at 9 o'clock on the documentary, a new documentary entitled Finding Sally, a story about a family in Ethiopia and they're dealing with their sister's uh, disappearance and death in the midst of the uprising there in Ethiopia. And very pleased to be joined today by the filmmaker, Tamara Mariam DeWitt from Ethiopia, joining us. Thank you very much for the time today, Tamara. Yeah, thank you for making time to talk to me about this, and especially because I just realized you're in Ottawa, and that's um, where my family lived for many years in Canada. Yeah, so one of the things that happens in this uh, documentary is there's all these all this footage of Ottawa in the 70s, and it was kind of fun for me as someone who now lives here uh, to be looking at it and... Uh, you know, your, members of your family went to Carleton. I now teach at Carleton. It was really kind of cool mm -hmm. to, to sort of see it all uh, come together. But uh, let, let's talk about sort of where this project comes from. And, you know, your family history is quite fascinating and perhaps even un unusual in that your grandfather was an Ethiopian diplomat. And so your family had the opportunity to travel around with him as he was uh, off at different places, uh, you know, doing his role of representing Ethiopia. So, you know, before we get into sort of the, the crux of the, the uprising and the film itself, how does your family uh, and, and you as well, like how, how do you identify your heritage in that you know your aunts in the film talk about you know, we're Ethiopian and our, our father was proudly Ethiopian but you know when they went back when they were young women they talked about it being a vacation and, and having to have people sort of figure out what the the local customs were at, at different times so I'm just curious you know you're, you're approaching this film and this project in your family's history with you know the, the Ethiopian roots but at the same time, you know, for your aunts, at least, their formative years were spent outside the country. So, so what is the, the family's identity when it comes to Ethiopia versus, you know, being, spending so much time abroad? Yeah, I mean, I think for myself, I'm as much Ethiopian as I am Canadian. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sort of like split in the middle. Um, but I think for my aunts, um, I mean, they, they may challenge me, but I think that they identify for the most part first as being Ethiopian and then the duality of being Canadian or American um, starts to come in because they did spend so much of their lives outside of Ethiopia. But I think um, it's really that my grandfather pushed into everyone this idea of you are Ethiopian. That is something that's, you know, an important part of who you are, an important part of this family, something that we take pride in. But you should go back to Ethiopia and work um, to improve and better the country. And I think, you know, in the 60s when my aunts were growing up, that was something that was very common that 
you know, the then emperor Haile Selassie was sending a lot of students abroad on scholarships for educational opportunities, but always with the idea that you will come back to your country. So I think that's, you know, something that was very much ingrained in my family, um, this this want to identify as Ethiopian and to live there, but they weren't able to live there for a long time, um, you know, because of the revolution and because of the insecurity. And now, you know, that they're all back living here. Um, there is always this confusion, as I think there is with many countries when you're a member of the diaspora of, you know, where do you belong? And you sort of have, you know, a foot in two separate worlds. And how do you manage that, that duality, you know, within yourself? And that's something that even, you know, I um, deal with by living between Ethiopia and Canada. Yeah, and it comes up in the film a little bit, too, when we see the images uh, of your wedding, right? And sort of, you know, how your partner is presented. I think it's your voice over in, in the film that says you know, he, he's there in part as sort of a translator in in early on in, in terms of getting me accustomed to what happens locally here. It's, so it's kind of this interesting dynamic that plays out as the undercurrent almost of the film, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, my aunts went back for, for a summer vacation, as you mentioned, in 1973, and it's completely different um, to come anywhere, you know, for a vacation, even if that vacation is for a couple of months. It's That's a different frame of mind and mindset than it is, you know, to move somewhere. So even for me, although I'd been coming to Ethiopia um, for 10 or 15 years before, I really started also having a house and, and spending, you know, a good part of the year here. So there's still that culture shock when you're actually living here versus just coming here for a holiday. Right. And so, so let's talk about part of why that is and what the, the culture is. So, yeah, as we mentioned, your grandfather was a, a an Ethiopian diplomat under the emperor. And I'm, I'm curious about what the political situation was in Ethiopia. You know, the film mentions that it's the only African country that was not colonized. It the, the lineage of the family of the, the royal family traced back to, to biblical at biblical roots. And, you know, when your father or your grandfather, excuse me, was out working as a diplomat before the revolution started, what was the situation in Ethiopia domestically that, you know, you mentioned the emperor would send people out hoping that they would come back. But in general, it seems as though what gets presented in the film is that there was great inequality within that that structure. Yeah, I mean, the, the situation in Ethiopia before the revolution, some things were great, some things were not so great. Um, my family, you know, was more privileged, um, one, because of my grandfather's position as a diplomat, um, but they were in the sort of, you know, upper middle class um, of society. Um, but if you look at, you know, what happened in Ethiopia, I think it's very similar, like, to the Russian Revolution. It was a feudal system. So there were only, you know, the certain people that were owning the land and owning businesses and really well off and making money, and then the masses who were not in the best situation. And those were the people that once some Ethiopians went abroad and started to become more educated and started to be aware of the other social justice movements um, that were happening in the 1960s around the world, 
And also, I think the influence of, you know, communist ideology started coming in. And this, these are sort of the things that lay the groundwork for people to revolt and say, maybe this feudal system isn't the best way forward. There's other systems of government. There should be changes to the Constitution and everyone should be treated equally. And as that's happening, your family is still abroad though, right? So it, it, I find it really fascinating that all this is happening domestically and your grandfather is in a certain way representative of that system that people are pushing back against. Mm-hmm. And so we, we get to the point where there is the, the revolution, the emperor is deposed basically, and your grandfather is asked to come back by basically the military powers. And he's advised not to do it and he's offered asylum uh or sorry mm-hmm. refugee status um in canada and he he wants to go back how does your family and and or even i guess you how do you try to understand that decision of he's going into a situation that is very dangerous uh for him as discussed in the film but at the same time he he's trying to basically do right by the country and at this, but but you know it's also potentially putting the family at risk. Like like, how how do you understand that decision that he made to go back when he was called back? I mean, it's something that I didn't learn about, um, you know, until I started researching for this film and and talking to my aunts and my grandmother about that period because it was almost like my family talked about everything that happened up till 1974 and then everything after 1991. But a lot of the stuff that happened during this military dictatorship, no one spoke about. Hmm. So, and I almost realize now having completed the film that even I didn't think to question like, oh, there's no family stories or lore from those (laughs) two decades. But I think, you know, the situation with my grandfather, like, yes, he was offered asylum in Sudan, in Canada. I'm sure there's other countries that would have also um, welcomed him and taken him in. But it again comes back to this, you know, underlying um, belief or manifesto or agenda that he had that the work that he was doing was for the people of Ethiopia. So it doesn't really matter who was in charge. Of course, I'm sure he probably would have preferred that the emperor stayed in power, but he was going to come back and say, I'm still committed to working for this country. Um, and that's what I've been doing for throughout my career, and I can continue to do that, and that's really the best way for you to use me. So, you know, you mentioned that the family, your family, didn't really talk about what happened during this time. Did you ever get the sense before you started the film that it was a painful chapter, that there was some sort of hidden story, or, or was it something that was just out of sight, out of mind for you personally? I think it was a bit of that it was out of sight, out of mind. Um, And I think it was also perhaps less exciting and less glamorous because a lot of the stories that I would hear were, you know, stories about like cocktail parties and outings and embassy life. And these are like the funny things I did when I was a teenager or when I was, you know, a college student and we were having fun and exploring life. So I also maybe didn't question it as much because then, you know, after university, you become an adult, you start working and maybe life becomes a little bit more serious um, and you're focused on your marriage and your job and raising your children. So 
I think there's there's a bit of that, and I think now, obviously, I know it's because it was painful, right. and I think that's why it was sort of not highlighted um, in the same way that other things were highlighted. So, what prompted then the interest in this period, and then which ultimately, of course, leads to the film? What what triggered that for you to to want to investigate this? Um, I mean, I've always been really interested in history. Um, I've always been interested in studying, um, you know, things to do like the Holocaust, what happened in Cambodia, what happened in Indonesia or Rwanda. Um, I've sort of been drawn to looking at like what drives and what is behind these sort of mass um, human rights atrocities and genocides. So I knew that something had happened in Ethiopia and I was always interested in reading about that um, and making some sort of research study or piece of content about it, but I never really um, thought about it as a film until I found out that I had another aunt that no one had mentioned to me in my family. And that was really um, the catalyst for me to find out that this period had actually impacted my family. Um, And that was what then made me realize this can be a film because I think it's much easier for people to learn about, you know, a, a period in history through one person's story. Yeah, I completely agree. And we, we were talking before we started to record the, you know, the work I do with with students in the First World War. The, you know, you, you can give a big number and say this number of people died, and at some point the large numbers almost become meaningless. And when you personify mm-hmm. it in this this very powerful way, you basically give voice almost to all of those people by telling one story, and it becomes uh, incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. So as you're in the process of doing this. You know, the, the film talks about how you got the permission, basically, of your grandmother, right, before you started. Mm-hmm. What was her yeah, feeling I mean, about it? Like, like, was she hesitant when, when you approached her about telling this story? Because obviously, if, if it's a situation the family's not talking about it, there's obviously pain there. So I'm, I'm curious what that conversation was like. I mean, every time I've talked to my grandmother about about Sally or about this period, she would start crying. Um, so that wasn't something I would try and bring up with her all the time. It was more about like, do you feel comfortable sitting and talking about this, you know, for a while while we have some tea. But I think that, you know, very early on, what sort of triggered her to be okay with talking about this, even though it was painful, was that she realized that if I don't know about this, that means, um, you know, my younger cousins, or if I have children they're not going to know about this. And that sort of means that the um, the lives that were lost and the efforts that were made to make Ethiopia a better country were perhaps done in vain because there's no memory of that. There's no memory of that passion and that commitment. Um, and she sort of said to me that she felt that that passion and fire to change the country, she wasn't seeing it around her, you know, in present day Ethiopia. And she would really wish that young people could know about Sally's story and what she stood for and feel inspired in the same way to improve their country. So I think, you know, that's what, what got her around to be like, this is a good idea and we have to record the history of our family. And once you have that blessing, then the next step I would be to talk to your aunts, I assume. Were, were any of them hesitant to participate? Yeah, I mean, I think no one was maybe overly thrilled about doing this. Some were more more eager than others. 
Um, and I think it also depended on, you know, where the line of questioning went um, in terms of what I was asking them about. But I mean, my, my grandmother was the head of the family. So when she said, this is a thing that we're going to do as a family, um, then I think everyone took it as this is something that we should participate in. So there was no pushback from anyone or, or reluctance to participate uh, once that blessing had been granted, basically? Yeah, I mean, like I said, everyone wasn't thrilled. I mean, right. it's also, I know, it's one thing to sit and be interviewed mm-hmm. um, and to, you know, to reminisce and tell stories. It's another thing for me to say to you, I want to follow you around for the day so I can see what your life is like. <laughs> yeah. um, even I don't like um, when someone wants to follow me around, even though I'm followed around in this film, because it's just a bit weird unless that's, um, you know, your personality. But I think that... Um, for my whole family that going through the process of talking about their sister and sort of dealing with and thinking through their memories uh, was also a bit of a, of a healing process because when something is painful, sometimes you hide it away and you don't deal with it and then it just festers. But if you actually start to have a conversation and I know my, some of my aunts said, this is the first time we've sat around as a group and talked about Sally and remembered her. And that's something that's important to do that we'd forgotten to do. Yeah, there's, there's a great moment uh, towards the end of the film, and I don't want to really give too much away, but where there, there's this discussion about closure. And uh, the, a, a woman who knew Sally, it, it, her just sort of seeing her speak and you know talking about closure, it, I find that a really powerful moment in the film. And you can almost see your aunts as they're talking through the film you know, almost their shoulders sort of start to come down and and sort of a bit of tension seems to get released. Certainly that was my, the way I sort of viewed it is that this was a cathartic experience for them, but obviously you're much closer to them than than I am. Did you have that same sense as, as you were going through the process? Yeah, no, I think, I think it definitely was. And I mean, we've had conversations about that, um, you know, after filming, um, about, you know, what was the impact of this. So now I think, you know, the next step is for them to actually see the film because they haven't seen it oh, yet. Really? So that'll be the the final um, the final piece, I guess, of that journey. Yeah. What What's the plan for them for, for seeing it? Is it going to be as a group or are you going to have them do it individually? What, what's your plan for that? Well, we were planning to have a huge, you know, gala screening in Ethiopia um, so that all of the aunts and, you know, a lot of the other people who, who knew Sally could be there sort of together as, as a community to watch the film. But that's, you know, been postponed right now because right. of the situation with with COVID. Um, so we'll see when we can when we can regroup and do that. Um, but one of the aunts is in Canada right now, so she'll at least be the the first one to see it. Right, and uh, which is which is it's too bad that it was postponed because uh, that would have been you know in talking about a cathartic experience, having everyone there to participate uh, and viewing the, the film together. That would have been a very powerful moment. Yeah, and we'll still we'll still definitely do that. It's right. just figuring out when exactly that can work. Right. Uh, yeah, and certainly, as you mentioned, with the uncertainty of, of things right now, it's it's really hard to plan uh, any sort of large event like that. So uh, so let's talk about Sally. We, we've been talking for almost 20 minutes here. We haven't really actually gotten to Sally yet. So, so let's talk about your aunt, who you never had the opportunity to meet, uh, but just really seems like a almost larger-than-life figure, uh, you know, very positive, happy individual. 
and yet somebody who you didn't know about until really you were an adult. So uh, mm-hmm. basically, you know, how did you come across that story? And what is your understanding of who Sally was prior to uh, the revolution? Um, well, I came across the story because I went to to visit my grandmother and she had recently moved into a new house and put up, you know, her decorations and her artifacts of her life around the house. And there was a photo of a woman above the fireplace that I had had never seen before. And when you put a photo above the fireplace, that's sort of the main place where your eye goes to in the room. It was a huge photo. Uh, and that was Sally. And for whatever reason, my grandmother had decided to display her photo. And at that time, you know, a lot of a lot of my aunts didn't have her photos up in the house. So that's also why I had never, you know, really realized that she existed. And that's sort of what triggered this investigation into who was Sally? What was she about? What happened to her? And what is the connection between her and why the family doesn't talk about it? So she gets during we mentioned the vacation that the the sisters or aunts all took back to Ethiopia in in seventy four three. In in the summer of nineteen seventy three. In the summer of nineteen seventy three, and this is in the midst of this sort of student uprising and young people sort of coming in and, and sort of pushing back against the emperor, and Sally becomes really involved in this movements and part of it seems to be attributed to uh the man who she married but also it seems like there was just a a genuine passion that she had for helping people that she felt had been wronged by the government and and it strikes me that the connection between your grandfather and sally in terms of the principles for which they stand uh, or stood were deeply interconnected, even if she was critical of the government of which she was a part. Yeah, I mean, I think they both were in support of or after, you know, a better Ethiopia, Mm -hmm. but they both had, um, you know, a fundamentally different idea of how do you achieve that? Because, I mean, Sally ultimately becomes a communist, um, which would be completely opposed to sort of everything that her her father stood for um, and represented. But I think, you know, for me, the thing I found most interesting in talking to my aunts and Sally's comrades about who was Sally and why did she do the things she did is that almost everyone has a different version. And it's, you know, probably the version that now reflecting 40 years in the future that you're comfortable with. And that's the way you're comfortable with remembering your sister, your daughter, your friend. Um, so with that in mind, I mean, it's hard It's hard to say concretely what were the things that drove Sally. Um, but for me, what I find by putting together all the pieces from everyone was that she did want to help people. And she did believe that many things were unjust in the way Ethiopia was being governed and that there were better um, potentials in terms of especially, I think, with with her group, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Party, a thing that I found really interesting is that they really looked at equality. And when these communist groups come into Ethiopia is a time when you also see women's rights start to be elevated because the communists have this idea that we should put women on the same level as men. And that wasn't, you know, as discussed before. And also the idea of, you know, regardless of your 
ethnicity, your ethnicity or your your class in society, everyone should be treated and seen as being the same. Um, and that's something that I think is really missing from Ethiopia today. So for me, that's something I was like, oh, there's a few ideas that they had that I think we should think about how we can return to. But why was that so feared then by the people who were in power, that the, the military leadership, these ideas of, as you say, equality, and, and certainly there were, there were definitely leftist ideas, communist ideas, but they were so feared by these individuals that essentially it became legal to murder them. I mean, I think if you look at what happened in Ethiopia, you have like a mass, you know, people's uprising against the imperial government. And then you have the military that just sort of um, swept in and removed the emperor. Mm -hmm. And the idea initially was that this is just, you know, a temporary transitional government. And then, you know, the military is just here for a bit and then we'll transition to something that the people would vote for. But that never happened. And I think if you look at a lot of countries that had, you know, communist aspirations or uprisings, how often did it actually turn out perfectly? Um, and I think, you know, the military and the, and the people who were in, in power and the person who eventually took over, which was Mengistu Haile Mariam, I think that, you know, power is, is very tempting and they didn't want to give up their control. And I feel that while there were some communist ideologies picked up by the military government, I find that a lot of that was just so that they could be friends with Russia. Because if you look at what happened in Ethiopia, Ethiopia was very close to the United States before the revolution and after the revolution aligned with Russia. And for me, when I look at that, I wonder, you know, what were the actual things that drove that and drove some of those decisions? Right. And, and yeah, as you mentioned, people, when they get power, want to maintain that that power. And, and whenever yeah, there's that vacuum that's created, a power, sort of this power vacuum after the, the uprising, and yeah, people will want to fill it. And, and there's no question, right, that the Soviet Union, as you mentioned, was a powerful influence in Ethiopia at the time and, and probably was propping them up. And some of the weapons, you see one of the things in the film mm -hmm. that's remarkable is the scene where they're just basically giving people guns for the purpose of shooting, going and finding these people and shooting them. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you think, well, where did they come from? Well, the pipeline through from the Soviet Union certainly would make a lot of sense in the larger geopolitical situation there. And, and that's one of those things, too, that as I'm watching the film and you're going from your grandfather, who was so passionate about his role and uplifting the, the country to seeing that, it's really a stark contrast. And yeah. I think it's a change no one expected. Right. But I think it was that desire of the military government to stay in power um, and this immense fear they had of um, these communist student movements that were opposing them and calling for a change to the Constitution and calling for um, an election and um, to move towards a more just as they saw it society. And I think that was a threat for them. And that means that these people needed to be stopped. And of course, one of the people then who needs to be stopped in this environment is your aunt, Sally. And I'm curious, there's the, the stories that your aunts tell, there's this, uh, you know, stories from the people who knew her, 
at the time. Was it difficult, though, to track her movement and her life once she goes into hiding? Um, I mean, it was definitely difficult for my family because she cut off contact with most of them. There's some of them that would get, you know, periodically letters, um, short updates or short requests from her to receive materials. Um, but for the most part, you know, they didn't see her once she went underground. So that also meant for me to research her life and for the film, I had to find the other people who were with her on the underground in order to be able to understand um, what she had been up to. So did you find any sort of paper trail or anything like that? Or was it all basically word of mouth? And, and because they were, as you say, trying to be hidden, you wouldn't want a lot of material around that could be could be traced. So I'm just curious, sort of what was left there for you to find and, and put together some sort of trail? Yeah, I mean, it was completely all through tracking down people who knew her people who were in the movement with her um, and getting memories and stories from them. Because, of course, exactly as you've said, no one would have kept papers or documents because it wouldn't have been safe to have been found with those sorts of things. And so for your family, they, they talk about that, you know, this isn't a, a short amount of time. This is a lengthy period where there's just no information about what's going on with with Sally. How much do you think that that period of time in which there is no information they just don't know how much of that desire to or, or let me rephrase that how much of the the family's decision to not talk about her and her life do you think was caused by the fact that they went so long with just not knowing i think that definitely contributes to the, to it because it's this whole period of not knowing where someone is, but it's also dangerous and risky to ask about them. Mm. So you want to find them, but you have to find a different way to go about doing it. And then even though, you know, anyone up until um, the early 90s when this government was deposed, you couldn't mourn these people who'd been killed because that would make you look like you were opposed to the government. Mm. So even once they knew what had happened to her, it's not like um, they could have a funeral or they could go into mourning and do, you know, the traditional things that you would do to grieve. So I think those two things just sort of um, compounded, not just for my family, but for many, many Ethiopian families who lost members, this this idea of having to grieve in private um, and that's sort of why I said it in the film. Sometimes it's it's just easier to forget than it is to have to remember. Do you think that's something that 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 your family is representative of across the country for you know the thousands and thousands of people who went through a similar thing with with other family members? Is this sort of a representative example of the healing that, frankly, still has to be done in Ethiopia from this period? I mean, I really hope that the film can be um, for the Ethiopian, I mean, and the Eritrean community, because we were one country then, and the Eritreans suffered, you know, exactly the same things during the Red Terror. Um, I hope that this film can trigger some healing, but also some intergenerational dialogue, because a lot of the elders don't talk about this stuff. So that means that young people don't know about it. And it's not something, you know, that's really focused on in the school curriculum. 
So, you know, teenagers don't know about this. It's not studied at an academic level um, properly really in the universities here. So I feel like it's something that needs to start a conversation so that the country can really heal. And how much of the sort of lack of study of it is related to the fact that, you know, as you mentioned, there's not really a lot of information about the people, given that they're underground, they went underground, they, they didn't leave a lot of, of paper trail. And then you have a generation of people who don't want to talk about it. You know, I, I, as, you, as I'm listening to you speak there, I'm thinking as a, as a researcher, I'd be thinking, how do I even study it? If, you know, people aren't talking, there's no documentary evidence that's there like you know how, how much of of that process do you think this film will allow people to start to hopefully open up and and create that wealth of research that that is obviously needed i mean i think the the telling of stories from this period is starting um you know there's been a, a dramatic film that was set in this period in fact two that i can think of <laughs> And there are people who are starting to write their memoirs. Um, and there are some, you know, sort of not not so much a memoir, but like an academic reference book about the period by a number of um, people who survived, who were members of, of Sally's group and some of the other groups. But I think that those tend to be people from the diaspora. So I think there is a connection to leaving and then feeling a bit more comfortable to be able to start talking um, and to document and, and release the stories of this time. But I mean, there are archives also, like I found a lot of archives in the Library of Congress in the States. Mm. Um, I didn't find as much archival material in Ethiopia. And the stuff I found in the States was stuff that was, I think one huge batch of it was smuggled out by someone in the American embassy in the mid 1970s. Wow. So what kind of stuff was was in there? Um, it was a lot of um, student um, newsletters and posters and signs. Um, and they even had some of the signs that the military government would display on, on the bodies of someone that they had shot, sort of indicating that this person was opposed to the government or this person is a victim of the Red Terror. Um, so someone in the embassy, I can't recall who it was, was collecting these things and managed to apparently smuggle out like a briefcase. Wow. Uh, and that was the best, um, I guess, like stash I found, um, especially for me to be able to read some of the student um, and communist publications and newsletters that were passed around um, illegally in the early 1970s. Because for you, then, that not, not only is a, a source of information about what happened, but also really a, an insight then into Sally's life and Sally's beliefs and, and what she was pushing for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time in, in the library reading these things because I found it really interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and it's something that I think should be, you know, in Ethiopia as well and, and accessible to, to people here to study because we do have um, the Red Terror Memorial Museum that does look at this period. But when you look at the amount of, you know, archive they have, most of the archives from this period aren't actually housed here in the museum. Well, th that leads me to wonder, what is the political climate like in Ethiopia? Are people open to it? You know, we see the prime minister in the film apologize. You know, the way it was worded, I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, but there is the he does apologize for for what happened in the past. But just in general, you know, we see one of your aunts is, you know, a talk show host who, who's pushing 
you know, the government and, and wanting answers on things. So what is that environment like? And is there a political climate in Ethiopia right now that is uh, open enough that really digging into this stuff in a deeper way will be acceptable to the government in a way that they won't try to repress or hide things? I mean, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know how the government's going to even react to this right. film. <laughs> I think, um, you know, that will be, will be very telling. And I think it's sort of a situation of like two steps forward and one step back, like some stuff improves. Um, and then some other things, you know, don't improve. And I think a good example of that is when, um, you know, Abby came into power, which was, you know, about two, two and a half years ago, there were a lot of journalists that had been imprisoned and they were let out. But now we're once again in the last year starting to arrest journalists again. Right. So, it, you know, it makes me wonder about what what is really happening. Um, but I think, you know, outside of what the government is doing and what the government decides to permit, I think it's also much more within the people and within the conversations that the people decide to have within the confines of their homes and with their friends when they're in cafes versus the things that we may do, you know, through mass mass rallies and talk about on TV talk shows. There's still that, um, you know, dialogue that can take place within families. And as, as the film obviously demonstrates, that is a very powerful experience on its own. And empowering people in that sense can you know, filter up as more people feel empowered in the home and this sort of small numbers that can spread across the country and, and more people can feel empowered to talk about it. And we see sort of the family, your family, you're there, of course, uh, at, at the end, sort of this, this beautiful moment, uh, basically where you found the, the when you found Sally. Uh, and sort of the the culmination of this journey, and I'm curious for you and, and your family that moment at the where, where sort of all this comes to to head at the end. How how do you how can you describe that moment uh, for for people who will see it when they watch this documentary? What was that moment for you and your your family like? Um, I mean, I think it was sort of on the one sense for, for those people who weren't that thrilled to be filmed, like the relief, this is our last, <laughs> our last day together, um, doing this. But I think it was also, I mean, it was a time of like huge change in Ethiopia. People had been protesting all over the country for a number of years. And, you know, the prime minister actually stepped down in the middle of when we were shooting, um, so it was a time, I think, to reflect on not just what happened to Sally and how do we feel about that, but also what has just happened to our country and what is the potential for the future of the country. Do you think that that story or how does that story resonate now for Canadians, right? This is going to be shown across the country on, on CBC tonight as we release this and, and the documentary channel, as we said. How do you think Canadians will respond to this story? One of the things that we have been guilty of in this country is being very uh, focused on what happens in the Americas, uh, and certainly just North America, even at that. Um, and we don't really look abroad as much as probably we should. And certainly, I think Africa, for a lot of Canadians, myself included, is largely a blind spot in terms of 
you know, the political and economic realities of what's going on there. So what do you think a Canadian audience will get out of this film? Well, you know, I think there's two things. I think, you know, um, one way of looking at the film is that this is just a film about a family that had a painful experience and it's about how you deal with pain and how you deal with trauma. And you can look at the film completely through that lens and forget about the fact that it has anything to do with Ethiopia. And then on the other hand, I think you can look at it and say, there's a lot of Ethiopians that live in Canada. And I find that Canadians tend to not have that much of a point of context or reference to why did all these Ethiopians migrate and immigrate or apply for asylum in Canada and come to live here. And these are people that are our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends. And I think this is also an opportunity to understand a bit more than what we get through, you know, the mass media about Ethiopia. And I think even many of my friends in Canada, the only thing they know about Ethiopia is about the famine. But I think there's so much more to the contemporary history of the country. And that also helps explain, you know, a lot of the, the baggage and the imported trauma that the Ethiopians had when they came to live in Canada. I think you're absolutely right. The, you, and especially when we're talking about things like trauma, when, when you know, family to family, when stories aren't passed, you know, generation to generation, as was the case with Sally for a long time, for people who are not, familiar with the stories of, as you say, like, you know, we've lots of people from Ethiopia, Ethiopian origin in Canada, but if they're not talking, you know, generationally about their stories, they don't really filter out and, you know, culturally across Canada with neighbors, coworkers, uh, whatever it is, like, we don't hear those stories either, right? So having this opportunity to, you know, just an insight into your family's story which is an insight into a larger Ethiopian story. I think it's a really powerful moment and something that you know, when I was watching it, I was really moved by the the various layers that went into that. And I was uh, very appreciative, not only of you, but your your entire family of, of being so open and willing to tell this story that obviously still carries some, some pain and some trauma for them. So I think it was a really powerful film and I said this before we recorded, but I want to say it on the show too. Just uh, a congratulations to you and, and thanks to you and your family for being so open about telling this story. No, and thank you for taking so much time to talk to me. And even, you know, for me in talking to you, I get to think about these issues even more and process them further. Well, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we could uh, we could set this up. It's not every day that, you know, we, we do podcasts where we're what, like, I don't know, like 10,000 miles away? Like, how far are we away from each other right now? It's, you know, it's it's cool that we can do this. Yes, definitely. Yes. So, uh, again, the, the documentary Finding Sally, it premieres as we're releasing this April 30th tonight on CBC and GEM at 8 o'clock uh, across the country on the documentary channel at 9 o'clock. If you go to activehistory.ca, We'll have a link to the trailer of the film. Certainly encourage everybody to watch it. You can go find more information on the film on Facebook and Twitter at Finding Sally Doc and Instagram at Finding Sally underscore Doc. And uh, tomorrow, where else can people find it? Do you have any information? Is CBC going to post this once it's aired? Do you know? Um, well, I know that the film will be available on GEM. 
for um, three or four weeks after April the 30th, the most of the month of May. And then I would say for people who want perhaps a bit of like a deeper historical dive um, into the film, there'll be more information also on the website, and that is findingsally.com. Perfect. And where can people find you and some of the other work that that you've done in in your filmmaking career? Because when they sent me your your bio, a lot of really good stuff there. And actually, uh, something that I had seen before on uh, Bravo that you were involved with that I I was like, oh, that's I, I remember that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I made a film a few years ago, actually, with with my aunts. And that was, you know, a test to see um, if they were going to be willing subjects to film with. Yes. And... So that that's actually on on YouTube and it's called Grandma Knows Best. But I can be found um, on any platform with with the um, my company name, which is Gobez Media, which is G-O-B-E-Z Media. Terrific, and, and definitely encourage everybody to check it out. And yeah, that Grandma knows best. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. Um, and uh, when I was when I when it came up in the bio, I was like, oh yeah, like that was great. So uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, congratulations on the film, and you know, stay safe uh, over there with everything going on with COVID. And hopefully, there can be a big party slash watch event with everybody together in the not too distant future. So uh, Tamara, thank you so much for the time today. Yes. Thank you so much. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can find us at history slam at gmail.com. I am at Dr. Shawnee fever on Twitter. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Google play on Apple podcasts, whatever you get your show, give us the likes ratings, all that fun stuff to keep the show going and we'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode but until then if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo please say hi for me thanks for listening to the history slam podcast be sure to check out active history for more features articles and be sure to subscribe on iTunes